0: One thing that we see most firms don't struggle with is recruiting diversity into the firm. The big question or the big issue that you've mentioned, Siobhan, is uh, retention. And so how do we change that dynamic? We can't We can't keep doing the same thing and expecting that the result is going to be different because we've seen over the last 25, 30 years, it hadn't been. It hadn't been.
1: Welcome to The Law in Black and White, a podcast featuring Jonathan Greenblatt and myself, Brian Parker, the co-founders of Legal Innovators, an alternative legal service provider. We've been friends for over 25 years. We're both lawyers with lots of opinions. In this podcast, we look at current events, the business of law, innovation, and diversity in the legal industry. And occasionally, we'll even talk sports. As the name of our show suggests, we recognize that there may be aspects of the law that require our thinking to go beyond just the black and white of the law. We share what we know, what we've learned, and what we're still learning.
2: In today's episode, we're going to discuss the role of the Chief Talent Officer at law firms and the strategies used for recruiting and promoting legal talent, with a particular focus on the post-COVID world. We're honored to have with us today, Liz Price and Siobhan Handley. Liz Price is Austin and Bird's chief legal talent partner, where she is responsible for the firm's hiring, training, development, compensation, and promotion of the firm's lawyers. Siobhan Handley is Oric's chief talent officer, where she focuses on designing and implementing programs to recruit, inspire, and advance legal and staff talent at Oric. She previously served as Oryx Managing Director for Resources, whereas an innovator, she spearheaded the development of the firm's talent model, which replaces traditional associate lockstep advancement with a merit-based advancement system. We thank you both for joining us today. We're
1: delighted to have you with us. So uh, the role of uh, a chief talent officer, uh, obviously I don't need to tell either of you, is complex and takes on many different hats inside the law firm. Today we want to explore how the positions that each of you occupy, and that is of chief talent officer, how that position uh, plays such a crucial role um, in the running of the firm and in the legal system or ecosystem more generally. So I guess we'll start with some basics so that we can orient the, uh, the audience and Liz, maybe we'll go to you and then move to Siobhan. Could you, for the audience, uh, describe, uh, the functions within your firms, uh, and how you came to take on these responsibilities, uh, as, as both, uh, both of you were former partners before you moved into this. And so love to hear about the transition, uh, what's on your plate now. And, uh, if you miss any aspect of the day-to-day practice, uh, we'd, we'd love to hear that as well.
0: Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Jonathan. And I'm so glad to hear that uh, the two of you have been friends for so long, because as it turns out, Siobhan and I have known each other for about 20 years or so. We had the privilege of practicing law together and becoming friends Mm -hmm. in that regard and now you know, find ourselves holding similar positions at our law firm. So thank you for bringing us together because we haven't had a chance to to see each other and talk in, in a bit. So for me, um, I started at Alston and Bird out of law school. I spent my summer uh, there after my second year. And I practiced law there, as you mentioned, for about 20-something years. During that period of time, I held the position as the firm's hiring partner. And like most firms, uh, Alston and Bird had a hiring partner who would hold that position for a couple of years, and then it would rotate. Uh, Among various partners. At the same time, we had someone who was what we would call the associates partner. And similarly, that was a working lawyer who would hold that position for a couple of years and then rotate out of it. When I was the hiring partner, uh, I started thinking more about integration of those roles and the fact that in law firms, you know, we're not selling widgets, right? What we're selling is our talent and our brain power. And we really didn't have, it seemed to me, an integrated approach to developing that talent pool. Because if you were rotating people in and out of that position every couple of years, there was, there was no consistency. Uh, there was no way to grow with the talent pool that you were bringing in. And, you know, the innovation that we're going to talk about, you just didn't have time. You didn't have experience to really even know how to innovate. So um, I began speaking with our then managing partner about perhaps creating a full-time role uh, that would be what we now call the chief legal talent partner, chief legal talent officer. And um, we did create that role about 20 years ago. And my predecessor held that role for seven years. And then when he retired, I took it over about 13 years ago. And so what I do um, have charge over is the hiring of all of our lawyers in in every role, associate counsel, partner, entry, lateral, our patent agents and specialists, all the strategies around uh, recruiting. And, ter- and I know we're going to talk some about pipeline, pipeline, and all that. Um, the development once they come into the firm from their orientation until the time they're promoted to partner, which includes mentoring, evaluations, compensation, and the like. Uh, training is a is also a part of my function. And then uh, I'm the alumni partner, so basically I tell people when they come to the you're stuck with me. I mean, from the moment you meet me, even after you leave, unfortunately, I'm always there. So that's kind of my my overall role.
1: Thank you for that, Siobhan?
3: Thank you, and I would uh, echo my thanks for bringing me together uh, with with Liz. So you know, Liz was, and I think Austin were really kind of prescient and. and establishing that chief talent officer role. Um, we were a little bit later to the party in that. Um, it was established at Oric, I think about 10 years ago. My predecessor, there's only one other person who served in it, and she is now uh, the COO of OREC, Laura Sacklad. Um, and when she uh, was promoted to that position, I was still at that point the managing partner for talent. So I really always had a passion around talent, um, even though I was busy with my practice, I was very focused on, you know, development, training, mentoring, and I found myself as I had been practicing as a partner for a number of years, really drawn to that. Right? I would wake up in the morning and I'd have, you know, two meetings on talent and four meetings on my client work. And while I still really enjoyed my client work, I was really excited about my talent meetings. And I found myself sort of pivoting and really recognizing that what kind of got me up in the morning, got me excited, was this uh, talent part of the job. So when, when the uh, opening, when, when Laura was promoted, she came to me and said, Hey, we need to talk about, you know, a new chief talent officer. And I thought to myself, "Huh." Hmm. Um, and I, you know, I made that pivot and I'm sure Liz feels the same way. I am really grateful to basically have a second career hmm. um, with the same amazing partners and people that I was working with mm-hmm. without ever having to leave. Right. I've been at work since I was a fourth year associate. So I think it's a testament, frankly, to both our firms and, frankly, the esteem with which these positions are are held. That we can pivot from being practicing partners to being in these roles and feeling valued, and that we have a seat at the table. Um, and it, it just, I think, exemplifies how talent, uh, how law firms are recognizing that talent is absolutely central.
0: Liz, did you have something you wanted to add? I did. I want to uh, just echo what Siobhan is saying there because I think this is really interesting. That both of our firms. Chose a practicing lawyer with long term connections to the firm, both in terms of what the substantive practice of law was like and understanding what that means to be in big law practicing, and a real deep understanding of the firm's culture. And I think that brings something special to this role when you're talking about uh, managing, managing lawyers and working with them and building teams and, and authenticity, if you will, and believability. In this position
1: Mm -hmm. i guess before we move to the next question uh siobhan did you have anything that liz listed kind of the duties that are under under her are yours the same or is there anything incremental that you that you might suggest to the audience
3: yeah so mine um very similar i have responsibility for firm-wide you know global hiring of all attorneys but also staff Um, And then I also play a pretty um, important role in overseeing partner promotions. And I also am managing um, pretty actively our junior partners and coaching and as well as input on sort of compensation overall. Um, I also oversee our HR function. So, you know, in addition to recruiting and development, I also have that, that oversight over HR. So roughly consistent, probably maybe a little bit broader, Liz, I'm not sure, but I think it's all, you know, within the... With the, I've noticed in the industry there is sort of a range of whether you have that sort of staff function and our HR function as well. And um, I have, I have taken that on with, I have to say, extremely able assistance from a great HR team, but also a top of the line employment practice. Awesome.
2: Just, I, w- I was going to move into uh, innovation as a topic in a minute, but before before I do that, just a couple observations. Listening to you, um, Liz, you you put your finger on something that I think. The profession has not done well, which is to adapt to institutional knowledge or memory, and part of the I'm, and part of the reason I think is what you said: people rotate in and out of these positions, and the institutional lessons don't get passed on. Everybody's always starting over, and when they do, they're um, they're not really taking a step back and looking at how we got to where we are and questioning whether it makes sense anymore. We, they just Inherit the the role and move on. So I think the fact that both of you have responsibility over so many different aspects of talent and you're staying in your role and you have the respect of the partners in the firm so that, you know, you are able to make suggestions that are listened to. Um, really does explain why when we met both of you, you reminded, each, each one of you reminded us of the other. <laughs> and I remember saying, these two people are coming at this in um, a really innovative, creative, and powerful way within their firms that we don't always see. And, and as a part of that uh, is innovation. And you've both impressed us with the way you've innovated in this, used your role to innovate. And maybe we'll flip the order around. And let me ask Siobhan first, um, in what ways have you sought to be innovative in performing your functions? What, what are you most proud of? And then we'll ask the same question of Liz.
3: Yeah, so innovation is is uh, pretty much in the DNA of Oric. We have a focus on innovation as part of our you know, strategy. Um, and it's something that is really, um, like I said, part of the culture and a, and a focus. Um, so I feel lucky uh, to be, you know, I took over as chief talent officer about five years ago. And it was really at the time where we, um, when Mitch was, uh, Mitch Zuckley, our chair now, took over seven years ago. Um, so, you know, he he really helped to start to bring this idea of innovation much more broadly. Um, across, you know, the practice of law and everything that we touch. So, you know, I think where I felt the uh, most rewarding and sort of innovating and, you know, a lot of people think of innovation as somehow, you know, technology uh, driven or focused. And certainly there's an element to that, but it's really not. I mean, most of what I do has absolutely nothing to do with technology. So I'm pretty uh, proud of uh, some, I think the innovative way we've approached our leave policies. Right we moved from a gender neutral policy, which we changed a couple of years ago to now we recently instituted a caregiver leave policy that is the same for attorneys and staff um you know we've got twenty two weeks for a birth mom and eighteen weeks for um the non birth parent and gender neutral no 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 primary secondary. we just have decided that given the modern workplace modern parenting and the way um you know, the priorities that we have and that we know that our team has. Um, We've really tried to be um, innovative that way. We've been really innovative around our agile working. Um, I felt very well positioned to go to remote working. I mean, it's worked. I'm sure Liz will have thoughts on this. Um, I think one real plus coming out of um, this unfortunate pandemic is the recognition by everybody in a law firm that we actually can be quite effective remotely we're losing some things that I think we can get back. But this idea that working from home somehow diminishes intensity, quality, commitment, it just, I think, is falling by the wayside in a way that I think will be uh, very beneficial. But work, I think, you know, we were ahead of the curve. We are, you know, prior to the pandemic, we had par- partners four um, mm-hmm. who were not associated with any office working 100% remotely um, that we had made in the last four years. Um, And I'm, I'm really excited about the way we're approaching wellness. And I think that's a bunch of innovation around that Um, understanding that wellness sustainability, um, you know, as to personal sustainability and the ability to keep working is absolutely paramount. Um, We introduced a new unplug uh, policy where we're giving, you know, billable credit for vacation this year. And, you know, I've gotten calls from colleagues. I've gotten calls from the press saying, like, how did you ever get this through? And I was like, I mean, the hardest thing about that was thinking of it. And once I thought of it, there's there was so much buy in of like, of course, we need to do this because we need to help incentivize people and to send a message about um, prioritizing. And it's easier to do that when you have a consistent message. And so those are the kinds of innovations that I'm sort of most proud of. But I have, you know. I have as my team always says, she loves ideas and I do, right? And you know, we maybe will come up with eight and two will stick. But I think it's law firms are starting to change and we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but I, you know, there has been a pediment around we can't do this differently or it'll, you know, it'll distinguish us in the market or it'll look, you know, different than others and now I think people are really embracing that. Um and it's an exciting time to be here because there is this openness to We've got to do things differently if big law is going to stay big law.
2: Well said. Liz, what are you proud of in innovation and what are you? What ways are you looking to innovate?
0: Well, first, I just want to start by saying, um, you know, I'm so proud of Siobhan and her innovation, having worked with her. I know how innovative she is. So I always look at what she's doing and what Oric is doing uh, with great interest and, and pride. And I agree with you completely, Siobhan. It's been so interesting to me to see. One of perhaps few good outcomes of this pandemic is the sense that firms are kind of striking out on their own. What works for us culturally? What works? What's a fit as opposed to being more like the lemmings? I will say law firms often are in terms of just uh, doing the same thing. Um, To me, a big part of innovation is not being afraid to fail. It's okay to try it. And if it doesn't work, okay, well, we tried it and we'll try something else. So I have felt very fortunate that uh, we've been able to have that kind of mindset where we're going to try it and and not worry if it's not always perfect. Um, Among my team, you know, our big saying is, what if, what if, if we're going to talk about something, let's kind of set aside what we're doing and just imagine what if. And so we we try and have a lot of those uh, conversations. Um, Again, similar to Siobhan, really where we've innovated a little bit in my group around tech, but not so much because, as I was telling you before we started this podcast, I have difficulty with the remote control. So I'm not going to be leading innovation around technology. But if I would say the things that I'm most proud about where we have innovated, we're being kind of at the leading edge in terms of alternative working arrangements So again, kind of going back to the notion of law firms, historically anyway, thinking one size fits all. Everyone's going to start. Everyone's going to be on partnership track. And then at whatever the appropriate time is in your firm, you will either become a partner or you will leave. We decided that we needed to be a lot more flexible. And this goes to some of the things you were mentioning, Siobhan, in terms of making alternative career paths available to people in the firm to fit whether it's a long-term uh, decision or a short-term lifestyle need. So we went from just a straight partnership track to non-partnership track positions for more junior lawyers, more senior lawyers, uh, stated policy and alternative career path to partnership that's you know not qualitatively different, by the way. There's no qualitative difference in terms of the people advancing to partnership on this alternative career path. It's merely quantitative. Uh, the number of hours that, that they can commit. We have project attorneys. We have people who off-ramp and on-ramp, you know, at various points in their lives. Um, so I have been very pleased to see that the firm has been flexible. And and frankly, the profession has become much more flexible in coming up with those uh, alternative roles. A big area that I have found of personal interest is on the training and coaching and mentoring side. We have very traditional mentoring programs that I I think most firms and professional organizations have, but we created um, coaching circles maybe six or eight years ago, which was, I believe, pretty innovative at the time. And one of the things we were addressing was um, the advancement to partnership of women and diverse lawyers. So one of the things that we often hear people talk about is lack of knowledge of the unwritten rules so if you're coming into an organization without people in your family perhaps who went to college or who went to law school or maybe you're the first this is the first law firm you've ever been into or or even job that you've had there's a lot of things about uh, any profession uh, but particularly demanding one With uh, hard charging, uh, brilliant people like the law firms that are unwritten, right? And so we created these coaching circles for our associates who were kind of entering the senior associate stage to get together in small groups. It would be usually four or five um, senior associates with a couple of partners to address specific issues in a coaching manner as opposed to mentoring. So Setting a goal, a target, a short-term plan, and then reaching that goal and target, and that's we think has been very helpful to associates advancing uh, towards partnership. So those would be a couple of the things. And on the training side, I could totally geek out on a bunch of the training stuff, but I won't because we don't have enough time in this podcast <laughs> for that. But I really love a lot of a lot of what we've innovated around training.
1: Yeah, I'm wondering if if you guys could just talk about. The greatest challenges that, that you face when you talk about identifying, cultivating and promoting talent, talent in general. And both of you got into some specifics, which, you know, I think are instructive. Liz, I picked up on something you were saying though. Um, and it sounds a little antithetical almost to the management of a law firm. And that is not being afraid to fail. So I wonder when, if you could, when you're talking about the challenges that, uh, you talk about the role of change management, uh, if that if that comes in.
3: So, um, Brian, to the question of sort of the biggest challenges we're facing right now, I would say that those challenges are the ones that we've been wrestling with together, right? I think it's really, right. frankly, right. increasing diversity generally at our law firm, um, especially as it relates to partners, and in particular, Black and Latinx partners mm-hmm. and associates. I think that um, we are, you know, we are laser-like focus on the challenge, but it's it's a big challenge. And we have to, I think, as a law firm and as an industry, look at ourselves to determine why it's such a big challenge, right? And be willing to embrace innovative ways to address it. I don't think improving processes or ways of doing things that we have in place right now are the way to make the kind of, really, the sea change that we need. Yeah.
0: I agree. And you know we we face, as Siobhan says, the whole profession is facing this issue. And when you think about, I don't want to say how many years I've been doing this, but not much has changed. And uh, that's remarkable when you look at the demographics in law schools. But I'll say another challenge, not to repeat what Siobhan said, but another challenge is the pipeline. So one of the things that we're seeing is the pipeline into law schools is changing. And that's not going to help with our our diversity efforts uh, in law firms. One thing that we see most firms don't struggle with is recruiting diversity into the firm. The big question or the big issue that you've mentioned, Siobhan, is uh, retention. And so how do we change that dynamic? We can't can't keep doing the same thing and expecting that the result is gonna be different because we've seen over the last 25, 30 years, it hadn't been, it hadn't been. And so I do I do think that's one of our, our biggest challenges is is figuring out how we can make a meaningful change in getting our partnership to be more diverse across people. Yeah.
2: yeah. You know, we've now delved into one of those meaty questions Brian was talking about that we did want to uh, talk about. And I won't preface it because you did you both have done a great job in prefacing where we are and where we want to get to i think the question is what kind of innovative ways do you think should be explored or you are exploring to address these challenges and i sometimes hear that some firms are doing better on the incoming recruiting side as you said liz some firms actually aren't they're they're still struggling with that um, and particularly uh, some smaller and mid-sized firms are struggling with that but you know the question is, are we, are we cultivating the talent? Are we developing the talent? Are we, is the system designed to achieve success? And uh, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on that, because that's the nut that we're all trying to solve for.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you completely there, Jonathan. Um, so one of the things that we did, a couple of things. So we hired our first full-time diversity and inclusion partner last year. 2020, she started, I think, the week before, or week after everything shut down for COVID. Uh, and prior to that, we had had one or two partners, working partners, who fulfilled that role. But having Angela Payne James in this full-time role has been remarkable and at an incredibly important time, uh, not just for our firm, not just for our profession, but, but for the country. One of the things that we had instituted before Angela even started is what we call the practice group diversity partner, or PGDP. So each of our 21 practice groups has at least one PGDP. The bigger groups have multiple ones who are assigned to have a very specific and hands-on role in the retention and management of our women and diverse lawyers. So they meet one-on-one, They monitor the workloads, both quality and quantity. They're engaged in the uh, annual review process in both supporting the associates as they're preparing for their review process and in helping to get the appropriate feedback, both in the formal process and throughout the year because the mentoring and feedback is incredibly important to anyone's success but particularly, I think for the more underrepresented uh, people in our law firm, if you're not one of the things you read about, and, and I know I'm supposed to say both points, I'm just going to say this. Before. But one one of the things you read about in the industry a lot is that diverse lawyers will say, I, "I'm not getting meaningful feedback. I'm just being told everything's fine and it's fine until it isn't." And I think there's right. kind of this, you know, benign neglect. And that does not help anybody advance. And so we've got to change that dynamic too. Where people more feel proactive with the feedback. Exactly.
3: Yeah, I would, I, I mean, I would say Jonathan to your question, which is kind of, you know, are we set up to address this? I mean, my answer is I don't think we are not yet. And I think we don't, we have to do more understanding and diagnosis of why, what the issue is. Right. And so one thing I think that we can all agree on, again, I mean, I I don't want to act like I'm doing a plug for legal innovators, but I guess I am. Um, you know, I do think we have to think about, you know, who we are recruiting and are we actually getting folks where this is going to be the right fit, where big law is the right fit. And if we're all, all of us, you know, Liz and I are on the same campuses trying to attract the same, uh, you know, associates, you know, are we really need to, I think, broaden and think more thoughtfully, just generally about, you know, the right fit overall. I mean, absolutely, this is more intense as it relates to um, our diverse associates, but our attrition rates overall are not good, right? And I think that, you know, this idea of people really understanding um, what a career at, you know, at big law looks like and making sure that's a right fit um, at an earlier stage, I think is really important. Um, And then I think we, you know, we have to look at, um, you know, the environment that we're in and think about I think you know exponential ways of moving the needle and it's you know one of the reasons why we joined this officially called move the needle fund from diversity lab that's really looking into large-scale implementation of bias interrupters and using what I think is the most important thing a data-driven approach to looking at these issues we have to bring the same discipline we would bring Liz and I when we were trying cases together and you know, unpacking a scientific defense, we have to use that same level of rigor. We have to. This sort of anecdotal approach, it's not going to solve the problem. And you know, lawyers are so generally arrogant. We think we just can just oh, we have a gut sense of you know the. We it's, know it's just not the case. And until we really get disciplined and approach this like it is a legal case, a thorny legal issue, and apply that level of analysis and discipline, we're not going to make the change. And, and we're really engaged in that now. I don't think we've come to any major conclusions yet, but, but we're starting to really dig in, in a way that I think will be helpful in fashioning how we approach the, this problem.
1: Yeah. I'm going to go into uh, a little bit, I think of a related area and that is, I guess, under the, the umbrella of diversity, um, our country. So it's not law, but you know, obviously laws within the country, we, we, we have this continuing pattern of, uh, of social justice uprisings, right? Uh, you know, obviously we had George Floyd late last year. Um we had a little bit more for from the verdict uh unfortunately kind of related uh, related maybe to covid, we had some uh unacceptable violence towards our uh Asian brothers and sisters. And so my question for uh for both of you, um you're you're looking out for the talent uh, of everybody. So how do you all think about uh, approaching these generally how do you support your lawyers and then within that how do you decide when the firm should speak out publicly and kind of make statements right we could be in the business of making a statement unfortunately almost every week now so i'll i'll i'll, I'll stop there but would love love your thoughts
0: yeah i will say you know the past year with the pandemic alone would have been Enough to cause stress and anxiety and overload, you know, for the strongest of people. But then when you add to that, you know, the murder of George Floyd, Ahmed Aubrey, Brian and Taylor, you know, what happened here in Atlanta uh, just a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago, it, it's to your point, Brian, it is just nonstop. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. Right. And it's we exhausting. see that in our in everybody, the staff, the lawyers, everybody's exhausted uh, by it all. So there's, there's a lot more to it than I could possibly say, not being a, a, you know, a psychologist, but from my perspective, in terms of talent management, there's, there's a number of things that we have done and that I think we need to do better. We're talking. Okay. So there are some that I see opportunities. I don't want to sound like a Pollyanna, but there's some opportunities that have come up. We're talking about things we never talked about before. We're having panels and discussions and, you know, openly sharing what people are feeling and going through in their life experiences in ways we never would have 12 months ago. So I think there's, there's something to that where we're learning from each other. I think that, um, I have noticed that particularly for our young lawyers and not just the diverse lawyers, but it's hit, hit our diverse lawyers. They really, they, they're just, they, they can't be called on all the time to be the ones answering the questions. You know, we have these conversations, mm-hmm. please tell me what can I do? Don't ask right. me. You know, you, that, so I, right. I won't, I won't go, I won't go into all of that.
1: No, no, but you're exactly right. You know,
0: but we're learning. And so many of us are saying, I'm not comfortable having this conversation. Well, you know what? Until you have the conversation, we're not going to make what Siobhan is. We're not going to make these changes. I mean, we've got to identify the problem. I love bringing science to it. This piece that we're talking about, I'm not sure has science uh, as much as it has heart. I mean, this is we're talking about the racial justice issues and coming to terms uh, with You know, our profession, our country, all the many ways we see this playing out. Um, But I really do feel that just having the conversation and being open and reaching out is making a huge difference because many law firms, many lawyers are not touchy feely. And to just connect with people, I'm going to use the word I used in the beginning, authentically, and saying, I want to have this conversation with you and I want to understand you know, how you're feeling. And I want to share with you, with you actually how I'm feeling, you know, what I have learned and how this is, how this is um, impacting me. So I'm not sure if that directly answered your question or not.
1: No, I I think you've, I think you've framed it beautifully. And, and, you know, I I think our audience has seen me on the, uh, the, our promo on our website. So as, as a, as a lawyer of color, you're right. Um, it can be exhausting. I think though, if there's a a bright side in what you said, I love the authenticity, uh, point that you bring up and I love that we're talking about it, right? Because I think, um, historically we've had these blips, this feels like sustained attention. Of course, none of us want the underlying events that have happened to happen, but the fact that we're trying to take leadership in the profession, um, I think is, is maybe one positive, uh, Siobhan.
3: Yeah, I, I would echo, um, what Liz was saying about the, the discussions. You know, I think, um, I would just summarize this by saying what I think is happening at ORIC and I hope is happening across the country is that white people are finally saying, this is wrong. And it's as wrong for me as it is for you, meaning it is not on you diverse, Hmm. People of color to drive the change. It should be as intolerable to our white That's lawyers right. that our industry is not diverse enough. And it should be un, in, as intolerable to our white um, citizens that our black citizens are, you know, experiencing what they're experiencing. And I think that pivot, um, my sense is that that has been meaningful and that we are really trying to own this and to understand that driving diversity should not be put upon our diverse lawyers and our change needs to come um, from our, you know, lawyers who are in the position of power and drive that change. And um, that dialogue has, has been, and so what does that mean? That means real, concrete, active allyship and change, right? Creating change and driving it in a way that I think um, feels like a different moment. And Brian, you asked about those public statements. And I think that's what really drives the the decision on what do we need to do to be allies right now? Right. And do we need, do we need, you know, we always are making internal statements is an external statement. Does it feel right? It's a subjective test, but does it feel right in this moment to be a real ally? Um, and that's, what's been driving our Approach. Um, and I, and I think has been again, I don't want to pat myself on the back ever because there's so much work to do, but I, it's a pivot that I think is resonating. And it's one that I'm sort of embarrassed that we have not sort of articulated the way we are articulating now sooner. And people are saying, yes, that's it. Siobhan, it should diversity should be as important to you and it should be embedded in the talent function as much as it is to the diverse.
0: That's right. Siobhan, I can't agree with you more. You know, to think about diversity as its own thing, I think is wrong. It needs to be included in the thought process in every aspect, not just even what you and I do, but throughout the firm at every level, we need to be thinking about this And it should just be a natural part. Hopefully, eventually, we get to where we don't have to think about it. It's just embedded in what we're doing naturally because we've started living what we're talking about. We've gone beyond talking and doing. So I agree with you completely.
2: I I was just going to share a couple observations that have come from uh, being involved with various diversity efforts. Unfortunately, without all that much progress since the early 90s, actually. Um, But just a couple things. One, I just read something in a diversity report in uh, involving another organization, I'm in, I'm uh, on the board of, where the diversity person said that lack of comfort in the conversation is actually part of having the conversation. The point isn't to be comfortable. The point is to be having difficult conversations that we've avoided for too long. And I think if we keep that in mind, we understand it's part of the process. the 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 second thing. I think in terms of talent and why we haven't progressed talent and advanced it and cultivated it within firms is that we have too often thought and assumed that talent comes in one form only. And that form traditionally has been to look like the people who were already uh, partners in the firm. And if you didn't fit that model, then the, pers- the, the assumption was you weren't talented. Um, and the last thing is, Uh, Something the first diversity consultant I ever retained told me, which is that when people are perceived from what's called a deficit model, um, a deficit deficit perception, they're only as good as their next mistake. And we simply have to shed that in law firm culture because I think it's persisted for way too long. And it's one of the reasons that people get uh, marginalized. And um, as uh, we talked about before, the feedback is... So neutral and so um, uh, disingenuous that people aren't given a chance to really get on track. So those are just a couple observations. Uh, you mentioned, Liz, um, you're not a psychologist, but um, w- but I think <clears throat> this leads to the last question we wanted to talk about, which is, do you see an emerging opportunity for factoring in wellness and mental health? as you're trying to unlock the the potential from your talent um, in ways that, as you said, lawyers have traditionally eschewed because we've thought that's too touchy-feely. And I ask it from a personal perspective because my, my oldest daughter is about to graduate as a psychologist um, uh, with her doctorate, and she wants to focus on um, people who haven't had access to the, the that system before um, and particularly help. Um, you know, black and mixed race kids, as she is, um, uh, progress. So, I'm interested in how you both see that.
0: You know, the the wellness uh, focus is so long overdue. I mean, we've seen that from the ABA studies. We, those of us who have signed the ABA pledge, know that. Uh, you know, lawyers have a very high susceptibility to all kinds of significant issues around substance abuse and depression and the like. Um, I, again, not to be a Pollyanna, but one of the things we've seen over the past year is a willingness to talk about it, a willingness to learn about it, a willingness to share. We had an excellent speaker just in the past couple of weeks who shared a practicing lawyer shared with us his experience with depression and alcoholism in a very real way. Um, and I got so much good feedback from people on that. And also a little bit of Introspection. Let me think about some of these warning signs that he was sharing, you know, either for me or for people that I work with and that I I can see this in. And you know, people before I, a couple of years ago, if you held a session like that, a CLE, you'd be lucky if a handful of people showed up. Nobody wanted to admit that this was a subject we needed to talk about. People are doing that now, so I think that is good. I also think that in with the younger demographic. A lot of the mindfulness and the discussions and and knowledge and engagement. We started something called A and B Mindful Monday. So every Monday we have a mindfulness session throughout the firm. I had never done it myself. And I now use some of those techniques to help me when I'm feeling anxious or even just starting the day, you know. And it's amazing to me just how little things like that have changed. There's a whole bunch to the wellness issue, but yes, I feel like we have a great opportunity to bring wellness meaningfully to the firm and and to the profession. I I hope we won't let this just pass us by, you know, be a moment in time.
3: Yeah, I I mean, I would say um, it's not just an opportunity. I I think it's an existential existential threat to the profession if we cannot figure out the way to navigate stress um, and wellness. And to to really bring it to the profession in a in a meaningful way, I think that we are coming out of a situation that's a once in a lifetime, and the stress that is created, the combination of the pandemic as well as the you know uh, killing of George Floyd and the you know just the overall um, approach to systemic injustice and the stress that that creates. Um, I think I've shared with you, Brian and Jonathan, that over the summer we um allowed our team to take bereavement time. Um, we basically said we'll treat it as bereavement time for those of you who are really feeling. I mean, I was hearing from associates of color that this was like a death in their family, that they were distracted, uh, they couldn't focus on work. And so we gave people the opportunity to take three days. And I had people writing emails like I'd never seen before about what they were suffering from, and so we can't have a, an inclusive sense of belonging at a law firm if we don't understand the link between those things and understand that the stress that's created, particularly in our communities of color, with with the ongoing issues, is an impediment to success. You cannot thrive if you if that is part of your daily experience, which for many it is, and the trauma of that. So. You know, I think it moves beyond opportunity to absolute necessity and critical to um, the success on all of our, in our efforts to be, you know, a diverse and inclusive law firm and to just be a successful law firm. Honestly, Um, it's, it's just, it can't be underestimated. I'm sure Liz is seeing this as well. It's hitting people incredibly hard.
1: Yeah. So I'm gonna move move us to our uh, to our uh, fun section. You'll at least get to do a, a pet peeve, um, but I have to I have to say we're we're definitely gonna have to have you two back. There was just so much, and you can see we're uh, we're trying to cram in just because you guys have so much to say, and I think it's instructive to the presentation. And I'll echo John's comments, uh, Liz talking about it as a foundational matter, uh, and and you know Siobhan um, the use of existential threat. I think that's right, right? Because uh, to start with Liz's point, she talked about uh, us being in the business of of making money with our minds—that's what we do. So, um, on to the pet peeve. We uh, we do this uh, we do this each segment, and uh, we ask uh, each guest, and then John and I go um, to introduce something that is bothering them, some pet peeves, something that they can't let go, and uh, and share it with our audience. So, I'm um, looking at your faces. I guess I'm going to go with Liz. Neither of you seem ready <laughs> to do this, but we're but, well, works, the moment to- is yours. <laughs>
0: I'm ready. Okay. Okay. What is it with people who wear masks on their chins? Okay. So, this is not a high tech object. It's fairly simple. You put it around your ears, you put it on your face. If you're like over two, you understand conceptually how it's supposed to work. Maybe it's upside down or inside out, not so much a pet peeve. But what it? I mean, why? What is, I see people all the time and it's on their chin. I don't get it. It drives me nuts. That is my pet peeve.
1: <laughs> it's a great one. No, noted. Noted. Absolutely. Uh, Siobhan.
3: So I'm <laughs> sure my pet peeve is one that you guys are getting all the time. People who cannot mute during Zoom meetings, right? Who do not understand the mute function. It's just... Or they're on mute, and then they're talking, and you have to say you're on mute. So we, I think, That's me. <laughs> since we're moving to the reimagining the workplace, we all got to get more facile with the Zoom, you know, muting and unmuting on the on the Zoom function.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm guilty of failing to unmute, <laughs> uh, John. So my pet peeve, you'll be
2: surprised to know, uh, again, relates to technology, which in general, I have a pet peeve about because it's works incredibly well until it doesn't and when it doesn't, there's no reason for why it doesn't. But I'll leave that for another pet peeve session. This is specific to the GPS system that purports to measure traffic and doesn't. So it tells you, you have an hour to go. It's supposed to know because it's based on satellite information that actually there's a backup, but it doesn't factor that in until you're in it. So yeah. so now you watch the hour go to an hour 20, an hour 30, an hour 40, and the first half of the game that you're trying to rush home for, that's gone at that point. So you're already ready to you know strangle someone. By the end of the hour 45 delay that it didn't tell you about, which you could have stopped by the way at a motel and watched the game. <laughs> You've missed the whole game. So that is my pet. And it's not specific to any one GPS system. People say, oh, you need to try X. I've tried X, I've tried Y, I've tried Z. They all think in this
1: regard. Well, uh, so much for attracting Waze as a sponsor for our uh, podcast. Uh, why did you use the, any name? I, I studiously
2: avoided any no, name.
1: It's, it's it's true. It's true. Um, so my my pet peeve this week is uh, is is me or a certain aspect of me. So um, as a former baseball player, relatively high level, I've said, why can't I hit? A golf ball a little ball that's sitting on the ground and not moving and I said okay over the winter I got prescriptions in my golf sunglasses I got a new driver I'm ready to get out there rush out there and um, I still can't hit the ball, and it's not moving. So uh, I, I'm irritated about this. But now it's not the equipment; it's not my eyesight. It's just got to be me. So I'll, uh, I'll keep at it. But it's a uh, it's a sad day in the in the Parker house.
3: I was hoping it was going to be the sunglasses. That would have
1: been a great story. Yeah. Me, me, me too. But uh, uh, unfortunately, anyway. All right.
2: Well, we want to thank you again, our guests Liz Price and Siobhan Hanley, for joining us today. You were terrific. As Brian said, you had so much to say, and there's so much we could continue to talk about that we hope you'll agree to come back. So Brian, uh, I thought that was fantastic. Uh, both guests were so thoughtful and um, and deep in their analysis. Um, I, I don't think there's much I can add to what they said because they've obviously been giving this a lot of thought and they're both innovative. Uh, other than perhaps hoping that we can get them back to pursue some of these topics and some we didn't get to cover in another session. What did you think?
1: Uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly. So I won't amplify that. I will say three things that stuck with me in particular, both of them were innovative people. um, And when Liz says, if we really want to make change, we've got to try different things and and pushing that to be the DNA of her firm uh, or part of it. I think Siobhan made two statements that I thought were really, and that is uh, on uh, diversity, equity and inclusion and on this trauma that we're seeing. Uh, we can't make that exclusively the province of people of color. Um, allies have to own it as well. And then finally, when we get to the topic of mental health, which could include that trauma, uh, could include stress, and goes across all lawyers, I think Siobhan correctly says that this is an existential uh, threat to our profession if less unaddressed. And I just think that's that's super powerful. We've got to be mindful about it. Uh, and even though it's been taboo in the past, uh, try to address it. So wonderful. I look forward to having him back. And I think this generation of younger lawyers
2: isn't going to let that happen. It, it's not part of their culture to just accept the sort of suck it up and um, be tough kind of approach. They're they're going to demand it. And if we're gonna if we're gonna cultivate young talent, which becomes your future talent uh, in the firm, then uh, then we, we are absolutely going to have to be responsive as a profession.
1: Yeah and and you know look I I think you know sometimes uh, younger folks will lead the way um I I don't think we just sucked it up I mean we worked the hours uh but I think it showed up in lots of bad ways alcoholism, overweight, uh, not paying attention to marriages, those kind of things that if we're up front about mental health and looking for positive outlets, like you said with Jesse or mindfulness or yoga or whatever it is that people need to do, those are some things I think that can be uh, provide longevity um, and keep people uh, more healthy. But I, I agree with this generation kind of bringing in a different uh, a different impetus, maybe on change. Anyway, uh, John, uh, kick it back to you to close us. We
2: thank you, our audience, for listening to The Law in Black and White. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find us at legal-innovators.com for even more insights. You can also subscribe to our podcast and follow Legal Innovators on social media to see what we're up to. And you can watch Brian play golf on Sunday afternoons. And I could tell you where if you just contact me (laughs) privately. We look forward to talking to you next time and stay safe in the meantime.